midlife. The Midwest. It's the middle class. The millennials. Baby boomers. West Coast. East Coast. The far right. The far left. What we need is some middle ground. Middle ground. Middle. Middle. Middle ground. Here we go. Happy 4th of July, Groundhogs. It's Middle Ground, the holiday edition. Happy birthday, America. He's Chris Otto. I'm Chris Kelch, and we're celebrating a great holiday weekend. Happy birthday, America. You look pretty damn good for your age. I'll tell you that right now. Not a day (laughs) under 200 and, I don't know, 40 years? I don't know. And our guest this week might be the coolest guy we've ever had on Middle Ground. He was a professional rock drummer in the 70s and today runs a public television station, a couple of radio stations. And on this show, on Middle Ground, he rolls out the phrase, audio masturbation. A first <laughs> a first on Middle Ground. So really cool holiday weekend. I didn't do a whole lot, but I will tell you this What right did now. you do? What did you do? Two dates how, how, in how does, three days. How does Chris Kelsch... You, you had two dates this weekend? Yeah, in three days. It's an, ar- oh, an wait, incredible hold, hold, record. Hold, hold on, hold on. Cue Louise music. is playing with sparklers in the in the booth, which is kind of dangerous, actually. But I know. Louise, open the Tinder box. Kelsh has got a date. Okay, it's Tinder time. Our weekly update into Chris's dating life. Do tell, my friend. Dates. All right. So uh, we might have to get new music because there's a new app. So Monday, I'm hanging out with a friend of mine at work. So she says, you know, how's things going with Tinder? I go, not too good. It's a bit of a cold streak. And she goes, why don't you try Bumble? Now, for the new I, listeners, I've out, heard of Bumble. I've heard so yeah. Bumble puts the power with the female. Yes, it does. Wow, and that's even so more impressive right. if you got a date off Bumble. Right. So here's the thing: it works like Tinder. You both have to like each other. You know, you both have to swipe right on each other. So there has to be a match in that sense. So you have to like her; she has to like you. But once you get to that point and there's a match, she's the only one that can begin the conversation. So you're right; the power is all with the female. But here's a theory: isn't it all kind of with the female anyway? I'll let our listeners ponder that. Yeah, but you know what? This sounds like to me, and based on our experiences over the past few weeks, and our hardcore listeners are going to agree with me on this. Uh, it has been painful to hear you struggle with coming up with the first line, the opener. Yeah. And now with Bumble, you don't have to do that. It puts it. It's put. They have to do that. It's I was always a better you. co-host. I was, as you know, I was always a better co-host. I don't drive. I don't drive the program. No, you're right. So she comes up with the first line, and her lines, their lines, haven't been any better than mine, other than hey, what's going on for you know Fourth of July weekend? So I hit Bumble, and immediately. Boom, 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 boom. A ton of matches. Like I'd swipe right and then, you know, ding, match. You know, she liked you too. So so wow. a ton of matches to start off the week, still waiting for them to in- initiate conversation. And so sure enough, a couple of them did. And so I responded. And one of them I thought was really attractive. I don't know what it is, if I'm just more open to it or what, but on, Bim- on Bumble and Tinder, I just found a lot more attractive women this week. I don't know what it is, because normally it hasn't been that high quality. Sorry, but all well, of maybe a sudden. It's, maybe it's a tribute to America's birthday. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm responding, and uh, my game is on, and I get my first bu- – considering I joined the app on Monday, I got my first Tinder date – or my first Bumble date on Friday. This was like um, – drinks after work type of thing in the West Loop. 
And uh, she was pretty cool. She's from Tur- she's Turkish. And, Turkish. Uh, he's Turkish, and Whoa. she was having a well. Tough that week. that means she can give you a Turkish bath. <laughs> It's a Turkish oh. rubdown. Yeah, she knew all about that. I'm so sure, yeah. She was from Turkey. She was having a tough week because, you know, friends, and that was the week of uh, this past week, obviously, terrorist attacks in Istanbul and the airport. So uh, she was sad about that, so we talked about that on Friday. But then uh, during the course of the week, I, I uh, some other person reached out to me, and we had drinks this afternoon in Lincoln Park. So I'm not, as you know, I'm not much of a player, but it was kind of cool to get out and about and meet two different people. I'm lately, I'm getting the, um, I'm not intimidated by this, but I'm kind of, it's kind of interesting. These women are, are all high-powered intellectuals. Like the one I met on uh, Friday was a big-time HR executive with Chubb Group, which is a huge insurance conglomerate, and she travels all over the world. And she went to Northwestern University, and she graduated college when she was like 16. She married a soccer player from Turkey. Like she's got these these people have these great life stories and stuff like that. So she, I was almost intimidated by that. And then the one I met today was really smart, and she actually got into Brown University. She didn't go; ended up staying at home. She's from Texas. And she had an interesting story, too. So I'm attracting these. Uh, I'm going through an intellectual phase. I'm attracting really wow. smart women. Kind of interesting. So, all right. So w- what's the what's the upshot here? Is there one that's in the lead? Is there one nosing out the other? The one today was from Texas, and she was more down home. And she lives in Lincoln Park. And I would say that's the in the lead right now. The one from, from Turkey is a little too... Uh, I don't know what she is, not American enough for me or something like that. But she's really nice. But um, so, so I would say the so, one from so Texas has the has the advantage right now over Turkey. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And it feels like we're talking about a soccer tournament, but we're not. It's actually females. What so do you like in that is, soccer tournament? Turkey, Turkey or Texas? <laughs> uh, so so where'd you take her on the first date? Bar, restaurant. What what was the what was the scene? Uh, just a casual place for drinks. Nothing, nothing too big over there. What'd you order? Just a vodka and soda. Oh, good move, good move. Summer what'd drink. she What'd she order? Uh, what did she have? She had a. God, she had like a martini, maybe. Yeah, it was mm. a martini. Okay, 30. impressive. Uh, just one or two drinks? Just two. Two drinks. Uh, did you discuss a second date uh, before you left or no? Yeah, I did. I like putting it out there. If it's a good vibe and it's a cool thing, uh, I'll say, hey, good I know move. where you live. I, I, there's a great little wooden fired pizza place right around the corner from you. I'm taking okay. you there. Per your advice, you know, set the date, set the time. Don't ask a question. You put it in the form of a statement Yeah. Uh, and make plans. Okay, so did she accept? Yeah. Perfect. Uh, so you got a second date coming up this week? I believe so. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean you believe so? I believe it's on. What do you what do you mean you believe? Why are you not saying yes? I'm saying, yeah, it's on. It's on. There, there seems to be a kernel of uncertainty there that makes me a tad nervous. <laughs> don't be nervous. It's I'm, don't... I'm nervous. I'm really, I'm sweating right now. I'm nervous. I don't, <laughs> don't understand. Worry about it. I got this. I got this. I, I got don't understand why you say you think you think so. I don't, I don't, I'm a little. She could ghost on me. We've had that happen before. Are you texting her in between with cute little flirtations? 
No, I'm not. We're talking about dick pics? No, we're not doing that yet. No, 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 no. Okay, okay. So here's what you do. You get some dialogue going with her. You got to keep the momentum going, right? You need momentum. Right. You can't just you can't just like drop off the face of the earth and all of a sudden four days later you have a second date. Keep the momentum going. Keep her thinking about you. You want to be top of mind, top of mind. Nice. Um, so, you, hey, maybe you can start just an opener like hey, tomorrow morning maybe. Hey, what's up? How was your weekend? How was the rest of your weekend? Whatever. And you start a little dialogue. And then just start something like, you know, um, hey, question for you. New York or L.A.? Question. <laughs> and then when she comes back, New York, why? Say, oh, I'm just curious. How about uh, Fallon or Kimmel? Uh, Kimmel. You window or aisle window or aisle and then you so you just start this little game right you start a little like game nice. where you're like nice. you throw or you're like Very oh nice. and then I, you can you know if you want to like slip into a little more personal then you're like cotton or satin and then she might come back and go are you talking sheets or underwear and you're like oh i don't know uh, it's up to you you just and, and then it gets a little flirtatious you know a little Very nice. so that so that's that's how you keep sort of a dialogue going and then every once in a while like oh i can't wait till thursday it's gonna be nice to see you. i was thinking about it Got get it. a dialogue on i like it i like it I, I need help in this area because i'm king of the first date and then ghost well that's good i so anyways long story short good week though good day good dates um Cool app, very cool app. This Bumble and um, Tinder. You've got some competition. Louise just gave me the high. She's already on it. No longer is it the Tinder update. Now it's the Bumble update. Probably going to be change. a Bumble update because we got to change the whole theme song. We're going to have to have a production meeting. We're going to have to talk to the network execs. Right. It's a, it's a thing. So congratulations. That's great. Your homework assignment tomorrow is to text her and say, "Hey, what's up? How was the rest of your weekend?" And then just start this question thing. And that's cute. You'll know she's into you if after a few questions, she's like, wait a minute, you have to answer these too. Can I ask you some questions? And you're like, sure, like go ahead. And then, yeah. I will tell you that I've gotten very, very good at first dates so that when I sit down and have a drink with someone, we cover a lot of territory. And no, offense, right, well, no offense against your first questions, but we covered those. She's Kimmel. And she uh, doesn't like New She's like me. She likes New York, but for like four days. And she's ready to get out of there. Those were just those were just examples. Oh, just, I know. You, know, oh, I know. you can get more in depth. You can refer back to things that made you both laugh during your date. You know, you know how it is. You know, you know what, to know what to do. So, but you know, I just want to throw out there: if you were really good at first dates, you, you would have had your last one by now. So let's not let's not get overly excited about our first date talent. But right now, my problem the, the, is the, I the, like them too much. I like yeah, first dates too much. Exactly, you're a serial first dater. I know. Uh, the, but the the key here is though, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Now you have to be good at the second date. All right, I'm gonna have to go to school for that. And thank God I have you as a partner. Welcome so we're I'm really excited about next week's episode. I don't know who the guest is gonna be, but I can't wait to hear what happens with uh, with Texas. Nice. And everything's bigger in Texas, you know what they say. <laughs> All right. I have one other news item. I didn't get into Harold Ramis Film School. I, app- I applied. I oh, I didn't know that. Did not get in. What school is that affiliated with? Second City. Um, they opened uh, a film school in the spring. The first class ever would start in August. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, man. That no, kind of sucks. Okay. It's all right. But all that means is this podcast is your ticket to fame. Yeah. God closes a door, opens a window. This is a window. He cracked it open. Let's do it. Fuck God, dude. We're doing this on our own. Fuck God. <laughs> That's my bumper sticker for today. <laughs> Fuck God. The <laughs> uh, dick pics. <laughs>
picks. Dick Real picks. simple. Uh, Kevin Durant leaves the uh, Oklahoma oh. City Thunder and signs with the Golden State Warriors. You just can't do that. You can't leave your guys and go sign with the team that beat you. Kind of an unwritten rule. Um, oh, it, it's just amazing. You know, the weak link on Golden State's starting five was Harrison Barnes, and he left via free agency. I, I don't remember where he went. Signed a mega, mega contract for the mediocre Dallas. player that he is. Dallas. What, Dallas? Oh, yeah, okay, Dallas. So now Golden State, who, you know, just a few minutes short of winning the NBA title this year, and as we said last week, it was all scripted and fixed. But uh, so their weak link of their starting five leaves, and they go out and sign the second best player in the world. How is that fair? I don't know, but if you go, question is if you go seventy three and nine, and then you add Kevin Durant, can we expect you to win eighty games? <laughs> like the guy's got to be worth plus something, right? Even to a team, I don't know. I don't know, but if I'm any other NBA team in the league, I'm just thinking, yeah, we're not going to win shit for at least five or six years until. And I th- yeah, and and that does that include Cleveland? Though are we talking about Cleveland versus Golden State every year for the next? You would say well, LeBron's well, got another five years, right? I mean, can we just admit that Cleveland is a one-player team with four support guys who are, yeah, you know, sure. pretty complimentary to LeBron, yeah. and that's fine. Uh, there's no way – I mean, anything's possible, but there's no way anyone can beat the Golden State Warriors if you add Kevin Durant. No way. No way. No way. I agree. Not, not in a seven-game series. It, that will, this will be the best lineup in the history of the NBA. Kevin Durant. What a dick. My dick pick this week, and I hate to offend you, my friend, because I know you're sitting right there in the city limits of Chicago, but I got to give it to Rahm Emanuel, his honor, Mayor Rahm of uh, the city of Chicago, the great city of Chicago, which I love, dear to my heart, and since I lived there for 17 years, I can criticize the city. Uh, I feel I have a right to do that. But after 37 shootings over the 4th of July weekend... Chicago now tops 2,000 shootings so far this year, which is an average of uh, like 10 a day, every day, 10 shootings every day, seven days a week um, this year, which is more than New York and Los Angeles combined. So combined. We're no longer, yeah, we're no longer the second city, and we're no longer even the third city. We're number no, one. No, Ch- Chicago is no longer the second city. In fact, Cleveland be damned. Chicago's the new mistake by the lake. Ouch. Uh, it's true, and uh, I agree with everything you said. Um, these numbers are astronomical. Um, Ten shootings a day. That means that's an average. That means some days there's fifteen or twenty. You know, some days there might be two, but some days there's 20, 25. It depends on the weather sometimes. Sometimes it rains a lot and no one goes outside. But, no, you're right, Chris, and it's uh, it's obscene. Um, I'm not sure where Rahm Emanuel is in all of this. Um, I don't That's know. the problem. Shouldn't there be, like, a giant, like, campaign against crime and shootings and gangs? Shouldn't there be, like, a sweeping something, I don't know, hiring of police officers, patrolling of streets? Shouldn't there be something going on? There's nothing. There should be, because the the two cities that you mentioned have had this problem. 
New York and Los Angeles, but New York to a certain extent. But New York solved their problem through whatever. I don't know what they did. I, I got to look this up and research it. Well, but. yeah, like Ed, I don't know if it was Ed Koch or Rudy Giuliani or Michael Bloomberg. I mean, they had a series of mayors that really focused on clamping down on crime, cleaning up the city and making it a tourist destination. They did that. Los Angeles, we all know, you know, Los Angeles in the last 30 years, maybe the most criticized police department in the nation. Oh, easy. Uh, yeah. Racial divides and all, you know, the, the Rodney King riots and the O.J. Simpson bullshit. I mean, that city is is far from, you know, harmonious. And yet you combine the murder or the shooting numbers from those New York and L.A. and you're not even close to Chicago's number. It's unbelievable. It, it really is. It's the south side of Chicago, the west side of Chicago, the Austin. It's a freaking war zone, a war zone. One of the problems with it is you, you sort of get murder fatigue. You don't really pay any attention anymore. It's like, oh, 11 people were murdered yesterday. 25 people were murdered this weekend. The general public is kind of used to these numbers, and nothing's happening. It's sad. I know. I know. Well, that's, uh, so yeah, I hate to do it, but my dick pic this week is firmly planted in the lap of Rahm Emanuel in the city of Chicago. What a dick. Dick pics. Dick pics. All righty, well, let's, go, let's move on to some good stuff. We're moving on to our, let's go to our guest this week. Very, very pleased to uh, have this gentleman on our show. He is... At this moment, the director of broadcasting and the general manager of uh, a couple of FM stations and a television station, WKAR-TV and WKAR-AM and FM, WDBM-FM, all in Lansing, Michigan, affiliated with Michigan State University. He started as a professional musician back in the 70s, and uh, all of these years later, he is firmly implanted in broadcast history in the state of Michigan. In fact, in uh, 2007, he was inducted into the Michigan Broadcast Hall of Fame. Just a tremendous honor for a guy who has taught and led Michigan State University's broadcasting program for at least 35 years. You and I both had him as a teacher back in the day. In fact, taught us audio production, which you could say laid the groundwork for what we're doing right now. So we're pleased to welcome to Middle Ground, Mr. Gary Reed. First of all, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So we're sitting here at Michigan State, and Chris and I know you as the hip, fun, student-friendly, everybody loved to take audio production from Gary Reed because you were, you know, the prof that had the best reputation, and now... 25 years later, you're running the place. <laughs> so what? how did that happen? Yeah, well, gosh, that's a good question. I, uh, and and I, I do have to thank you guys for doing it. I, uh, I have to say that, um, uh, you know, you're talking about the prof and the student thing. Um, one of the greatest sort of thrills or satisfactions for, for me is, you know, that, that student title is so transitory. You know, mm-hmm. we spent, what? you know, a few months together, right? You right. know, uh, teacher, student. But, you know, the fact that you guys are doing this of your own volition, uh, you know, just because you dig it, mm-hmm. you know, I'm living vicariously through you. So, <laughs> you know, that, I mean, that's really fun to me. Yeah. That's really enjoyable. 
there's less hair than you remember. Uh, what there <laughs> and is, and it's of, a different color. I that must it say. is. It's uh, 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 it, it has gone uh, uh, distinguished gray. That's I guess right. is the way to think about it. But I have to tell you guys how I got here. I have no idea. There was no grand scheme. I mean, I started off as a professional musician, and that was an accident. You know, I guess. Uh, Tenacity, uh, <laughs> you know, comes in. I guess curiosity comes in. If someone were to say to me, I obviously didn't know you very well. I think I had your class for one semester. But if I were to guess which professor that I had at that time would be able to navigate university politics <laughs> and have the staying power for a couple of decades to rise to the level of not only run, I mean, you're running the broadcasting operation here, not just the yeah. academic stuff, but I wouldn't have picked you at all. I would have thought you would have gone on to, to other things instead of university administration. Well, the the thought of me being a teacher or, you know, ultimately doing what I'm doing now never figured in my brain. I don't want to seem like a slacker. It wasn't a game plan, you know. Right. It, it, I never said, yeah, I want to be a professor. There were people at, at every juncture along my uh, career that sincerely and significantly affected where I am today. You know, taking, taking the music thing. I played drums. I started playing drums in fourth grade. My mom got me a private teacher. And every Tuesday night, you know, I would go to drum lessons. And I hated the guy. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I have to tell you, uh, you know how, how kids are. And so the deal was he was a young father he was the lead percussionist for the Detroit Symphony. Now, now this is wow, this a good is, teacher. This is in the in the late sixties, like late sixties rock and roll, man. I, you know, yeah. I wanted to rock. I wanted to play drums. <laughs> you know, that is an overdrop. I I was bummed out. But then quickly, I'd I'd go to the school band. I went to Dearborn High School. I did better in the tryouts. And as much as I hated to go to my private teacher, I was better. Yeah. Because he was making me do rudiments. Right. So at that period of time, an advertiser went to an ad agency. The agency hired a composer at a studio that hired union musicians. Yep. And, and and spots were all done. There was no such thing. There's no such thing as stock music, you know, production music. Yeah, Everything yeah, was right. custom. And so fortunately, my teacher, Len, was, uh, was a purist. He was a snob. And when the ad agency started saying, hey, you know, we, we need a rock beat. Well, he wouldn't play it. He refused. Well, he was the go-to session guy. And so they said, well, okay, here's the problem. We've got this rock uh, music bed that we need, but none of these rock and roll drummers couldn't read, you know, couldn't read music. So here I am, you know, what, probably a, a sophomore, junior in high school, and my teacher has taken me downtown to United, United Sound Studios in, in downtown Detroit, to do these sessions and, you know, so I'm, I could read music and I could play rock. And so to me, it wasn't special. It was just what I was doing. Subsequently, I kind of appreciated him a whole heck of a lot more than I did at the time. And I, f I feel guilty about that. Taking that whole thing from a music standpoint, I came to Michigan State as a student. And frankly, you know, it was just, it was grade 13. So I was playing, and back in those days, a band could actually make a living playing music. So we imagine would, that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we, we, you know, we we were getting booked in the the Coral Gables circuit was huge at the in those days. So you'd get booked in for a week, and and you know you're making great money. So school was kind of secondary to me. Mm -hmm. I ended up taking 
an audio course that I later inherited, you know, to teach. And uh, it was taught by a guy by the name of Fred Jacobs. And uh, Fred is the uh, uh, kind of a, one of the premier uh, broadcast consultants in the country. He's the guy that created uh, the classic rock format that we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later the edge format, uh, which is kind of the alternative rock. Yeah. So Fred uh, needed an engineer, and I kind of had an engineering background. He said, hey, you ought to go to grad school, to which I laughed. You know, I was like, <laughs> right, well, why would I do that? You know? right. And uh, But I applied, and I got turned down. And I, I, to this day, I still have the rejection letter, and and I got was it here. MSU? It's here at MSU. Yeah. Wow! And um, uh, you know, in fact, I got my file, and in the file was a notation by you know one of my soon to become colleagues that said improbable degree of success. <laughs> <laughs> you have to frame that. You know, that's got to be on your wall. I I looked at it, and I was bummed out, but by the same token, I didn't care. Well, Fred. Um, and, and I've talked to Fred about this. He doesn't remember it. But um, he walked down to the chairman's office, and he's just, you know, I'm in the outer lobby, and he's pounding the table, and he goes, if I don't get Reed and grad, you know, for a grad assistant, you don't get me. Wow. Almost panic washes over you, like, oh, my God. You know, this man just put his job on the line yeah. for me. Right, no and pressure. I, and I'm a flake, <laughs> you know, uh, Right. And, and so, with a high degree of self awareness, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just said I got to stand up, right? You know, and and so you started heading down the path and taking a look at broadcasting, and you know, this world starts to open up to you. When you look back on growing up in Detroit, I always think of that as just this phenomenal. Oh, I don't know. Radio town comes to mind. I'm from Chicago, so when yep, I yep. came to Michigan uh, as a freshman at State, but I quickly learned about all the great Detroit AM radio stations, WJR, and you know, sure. and the great rock stations. Did any of that uh, strike a chord with you? Did any of that influence you at all? And, and, and as you were growing up, thinking, "Wow, that's really cool." Uh, my folks always listened to uh, WJR and uh, J.P. McCarthy and Jimmy Lawns. Uh, Mike Worf. Um, my big radio influence in those days uh, in progressive rock radio was WABX. And that was the precursor to uh, WRIF. You know, so ABX and Riff, uh, you know, Fred and I did a lot with Riff. Um, um, you know, I, I did a, a, a few stints as a DJ and, and so on. But, um, you know, uh, I wasn't that good at doing that, but I was doing engineering and, and you know, the music connection. And, and so, those were those were very very fun times and instrumental for me in terms of forming uh, my thoughts with the student radio that you guys were at you yep. know uh, WDBM that we put on the air in 1989 that was sort of a pioneering college radio station that you were the guy behind you were the staff member the you know the um, the faculty member on at Michigan State that really people needed to be friends with if they wanted to be a DJ on, on WDBM and spin some music that nobody else was listening to in those days. And it, it's still around, and it still gets, what, College Radio Station of the Year awards from... Uh, How did you get it so good? The quality's amazing. You got great playlists. You got a great staff. You deserve those accolades. I mean, you, you should have won those awards. I mean, it's just an amazing radio station. How, you've got to be really proud of that. I, I don't want to be overly humble, but I need to thank you because... Your sort of comments um, are are really what helps drive that station. So um, uh, to to take it back, uh, when I first got to MSU, it had the largest on-campus carrier current radio system in the world. 
and and by carrier current, we, it wasn't FM. It was broadcast on on 6:40 a.m. Mm-hmm. and and uh, in Fee Hall we had WFAE. That was a dorm before it became the med school. Yep. Uh, WKME was in the basement of Shaw. WEAK Week Radio was in the basement of Wonder. Week Radio. <laughs> WEAK. Right. That. Uh, WBRS was actually the first station that started over in the Brody complex. Wasn't was there a WLFT? Uh, well, LFT is what all of the small stations okay. kind of dwindled down to. By the time we got into the mid-70s, right. you know, the, the interest had waned. AM was not, you know, that popular mm-hmm. uh, and, and so on. So that was there. My connection with the campus radio started off really as a DJ, uh, you know, in the early 70s and then as a uh, an engineer. I got a role because I was a faculty member teaching radio and audio. On, on the radio board. And um, the, uh, uh, the radio board had applied for an FM license in uh, 1967, I think it was, uh, 1977, excuse me. Uh, by the time we got into 1987, the FCC had finally uh, approved our FM license. Uh, the call letters, WDBM, um, and I'll kind of share a little, people kind of know this, they were, were an accident. So um, when the license came from the FCC, the actual assigned call letters, random uh, mm-hmm. uh, assignment, was WBDM. And somewhere here on campus, in all of the conversations, um, they got dyslexically reversed. <laughs> it was a, so it was a typo? Is that what you're saying? Well, some, you know, and anyway, so the, the, the left, WLFT, there yep. were the, the faction of DJs, you guys, mm-hmm. were saying, no, man, we, you know, we want to be the left. Well, yep. you know, the university administration says there's no way that, that we're, you know, having a lefty radio station on this campus. So we're going to go with the call letters. Well, everybody thought the callers were WDBM, and people, you know, the 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 negative side, the con side, was saying, "Oh, you know, that's that's W dumb," and <laughs> you know, and that's not going to work. So um, our our first slogan when we when we put the thing on in, in uh, late '88 uh, and early '89, uh, that's we, when we were here, right? When we were doing the testing. Wow. So the early, you, you guys know it as the impact. Yep. That's how we've kind of identified it. But the actual first moniker that we used was we're doing better music. And WDBM. So, that's right. Yep. So that, that's, that was what it really kind of uh, okay. you know, got, got signed on for. So anyway, to, you know, to come back to that, most college radio in those days, you know, I, I don't mean to be offensive here, but it was kind of like Sonic. It's a ma- podcast. You can be offensive. Okay. It's, it was Sonic. <laughs> it was Sonic Masturbation. You know, right? I love that's a great name for a band. <laughs> Sonic right. Masturbation. It's a great name for a podcast. We yeah, just right. a name for this thing. Write that down. There you go. Okay. Uh, but, you know, the, the idea was that if you let the jocks play whatever they wanted uh, and, and you add them up, every, you know, there may be 12, 13 songs an hour. Right. And you've got, you know, two hours, three hours, four hours. Well, we actually started checking it out and we found that of the, you know, let's say 45 to 50 songs that that a student may play, a kid might play during their shift. um, By the end of the semester, you basically uh, had 80 percent of those same songs. So over the course of, you know, two, three, four months, there was just very, very little turnover. You know, because they were playing what they dug. 
and it was very inconsistent from one jack to another. So, you know, it was cool for the jacks to, to kind of get off on doing their own thing. But from a listener's standpoint, it wasn't really working. Mm -hmm. So over a lot of years, and, and it took quite a while, we finally created a format there um, that, that I, uh, I'm, I'm proud of being able to get through. And it consists of three categories. Uh, the first category is a core. And a core song, as you would expect, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, the age old, uh, alternative act, you know, whether it's, it's something that pretty much everybody would listen U2, to like, REM, yeah, right. you know, that are considered mainstream now, but yep. those were stones, you know, th right. Yep. You know, th where, where that would go. Then you would have, um, a, uh, a new artist and a new artist, um, you know, would be somebody that you've never heard of before, but, you know, we thought had potential. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have a breaking artist. And that a breaking artist would be somebody that would be on, you know, uh, Letterman or Leno or Conan, uh, you know, whoever. Yeah. You know. Uh, you only you, know about them if you're cool. Th that's right. You're, you know, you're, right. they'd be in Vibe magazine or, you know, yeah. Stone, Rolling Stone would, you know, pick up on them. So the, the concept is that when you think about it from an audience's standpoint, not a DJ standpoint, um, you know, you would say, well, uh, you're only two songs away from something that you're going to dig. So if you're a mainstream guy, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, you, the, the core songs are going to keep you going. Uh, if you are a terminally hip, you know, if I if anybody has ever heard it before, then it must suck. You know, uh, you know, if you're that terminally hip kid, uh, then, you know, you wait two songs and you've got one of your things in there. So that sort of rotation is something uh, that that really helped establish uh, the impact and take it away from, you know, your standard college radio uh, free form where everybody got to do what they got to do. And on that basis, uh, we were able to build an audience. And, uh, you know, in the heyday, um, that, that audience uh, was, uh, you know, several thousand people uh, at any given given moment. So what's the difference between those days and the way DBM is operating today? I left the station uh, a few years ago, uh, and a former graduate assistant of mine, Ed Glazer, took over. And uh, when I came over here to WKAR, let's say in the early 20, you know, the aughts, mm -hmm. as we got in there, <laughs> right. um, the... Uh, the, the way people consumed music, you know, this started with, with Napster and so yep, on. Yep. The way people consumed music was different. Um, and radio became less and less of a, an important source for uh, the young students. Right. Now, we still had a lot of people coming on board, but uh, they were into it because it was kind of cool, not because they cared that much about the music. So there was a, a, a seismic shift really from where you guys were there. You guys, right. you guys grew up, uh, as your questions kind of reference, listening to radio. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, you knew yeah. what cool radio sounded like, or probably more importantly, you knew what bad radio sounded like. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so. And there was no, nowhere else to hear that music. That's right. A absolutely. So uh, when that kind of went away in the early aughts and, and you know, five and, and so on, you know, 10, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. we started to really see that, that students coming in um, were 
were frankly really bad. And and I was like pulling my hair out. How can how can this be? Bad and, at 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 you know picking quality music or bad at hosting show. What what were they bad at? Yes, yes, everything and yes. Okay. And and it finally dawned on me. Well, they don't they don't listen to radio anymore. Yeah. And and so they didn't know what a good jack sounded like. They didn't even know what a good segue sounded like. Mm-hmm. And and you know as iTunes came up. You know, people would make playlists. And if you remember a few, you know, 10 years ago, so we had all these formats, you know, the Bob, the Tom format, the the Doug format, the, you know, fill in the blank format, the Mike format, you know, where we play anything. Mm -hmm. Well, that was like taking us back to the days of, you know, self-indulgent campus radio. Yeah, you were talking about the DJs who would just play what they liked. That's right. And and with no rhyme or reason. Right. So uh, anyway, um, uh it's been a, a difficult road. The interesting thing about uh, the impact, WDBM, is that while they are students, um, the average age of the audience, and this is according to Arbitron or now Nielsen, which does the ratings, mm-hmm. uh, was 29.1 years old. So if you do the math, if that's the average, yep. you know, you, you've got a lot of oldsters like me Cling, clinging, clinging. Yeah. you know, and listening Hanging to Hanging on it. to the good old days. Right, and, and, and so... That was cool, uh, you know, from from the old guy's standpoint, because yeah. they were getting that same sort of thrill out of radio the way that I did with progressive rock radio in, in the late 60s, yep. you know, WABX and RIF and, you know, and, and so on. Um, and, and, and yet the, the young students were thinking, well, this is, you know, our college radio. So and, and no 19-year-old wants to listen to the same music that a 29-year-old is listening that, to. That, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and so the, the real challenge for the impact over all of these years, uh, because it's a volunteer staff, is, you know, to, to find the, the right people um, and then uh, build an audience based on, you know, what that audience wants. So if I'm proud of anything, it was to create a structure from 89 through, you know, 2010 or, you know, 11, I think I left in 12, mm-hmm. um, something like that, where uh, people could succeed, it, you know, where the staff could succeed because, you know, the it's a transient deal. Uh, you, we would have 70, 80% uh, turnover with that and so to be able to be consistent the framework that format has to be there and format is not a negative thing right it provides some structure so it doesn't absolutely spin out of control and the format became even more important when i realized that people uh students uh weren't having these preconceived notions of djs coming in so it forced training to be different and so mm-hmm. on. Um, uh, during my reign there, we had uh, uh, 11 consecutive uh, station of the years uh, from the MAB, and, and so that was great. Um, uh, yeah, Michigan we, Association of Broadcasting. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we lost for a few years, but uh, you know, um, uh, Ed has figured out a way, and, and uh, just in May, um, he got it back. And, oh, great. And so, uh, the, you know, that's kudos to well, him. Well, that's, an, yeah. that's an amazing statistic. Um, the thing that uh, when I hear you talk about this, it kind of leads me to my next question, which that's great that we you found passionate people that really care, and that's awesome. I'm wondering if the broader industry, the, the broader radio industry itself, isn't suffering from the same thing, though. And by that, I mean it's great 
that we're doing podcasting. Love it. Everyone's starting to do it. Everyone's starting to explore their talents and their technical know-how and things like that. That's all good. But I'm wondering if radio hasn't suffered quite a bit as a result of that. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. You know what I mean? You know, I have to say, Chris, I'll piggyback on that because just, you know, Gary gave me a tour of the studio before we, we, we started here today. And it's surprising, you know, WKAR is on the air right now, but there's nobody in the studio. It's all automated. They're playing either feeds from uh, National Public Radio or you know classical music that's all pre-programmed. There's no DJs sitting around. And uh, it, it does raise the question of what is the future of radio? And it, from a guy like you who's been immersed in this world, you know, music over the airwaves forever, where's it going to go? Well, that's, uh, I don't know that I'm qualified to, to answer that. But you have to be qualified. You're the only guy who is qualified. You're the only one, yeah. That's why you're on the show. That's right. Oh, God, no, I'm scared. So, uh, um, But, you know, you, your questions, I, I think, are, are quite uh, astute and, to me, very, very important. Um, and, and I'm not just, you know, trying to say that to, to, to agree with you. Um, there is a, an experience, and in, in, uh, Chris, you mentioned it a little earlier, you know, whether it's Larry Lujak or J.P. McCarthy or Arthur Penhallow or who on, these humans um, are connecting to people's lives. And, uh, and they connect in, in ways that, that I believe are particularly important, even more so today than than ever before so you know the concept of, of jp mccarthy in, in detroit he was everybody's friend you know you're you're stuck in traffic and yep. admittedly detroit traffic is not as bad as chicago or la or boston you know but he was the guy who was sitting next to you in the front seat as you drove to work every morning. Right, and he was, so for people who don't know, WJR, the most powerful station in Detroit, and he was yep. drive time, yep. just sort of talk, the, the, I guess the beginning of talk radio, right? He just, he was your guy on the way to work. And... He, he would he would play music, but he would do interviews, uh, yep. you know, just, uh, just kind of charismatic. Yeah, you personality know? based I, radio. A, a, absolutely. absolutely, and yep. I'll never it, forget that, uh, remember that, I don't know whose voice that was, the voice of God. Was that Paul Carey's voice, the voice of God that would come on and say, uh, from the golden towers of the Fisher, Fisher Building, building WJR. Right? Yep. Um, I'll never forget. Though that like that stuff sticks, though. You remember yeah. that. You right. Know, like it, you said, I mean, you just never forget that big booming voice coming on from the golden towers of the Fisher Building, WJR. You know, and, and I, I'm, I'm just thrilled that, that you remember that because that, to me, is the value of what broadcasting can be you know as head of broadcasting services here but also as a guy who just loves radio and loves music when you look five years ten years down the road w what role is radio playing as the years go by well um let me expand a little bit in in the area of uh, podcasts like you guys are doing yeah um radio and tv for that matter um mm -hmm. has has unfortunately, I think, been characterized by how it is distributed as opposed to uh, what it really is, in my mind, and that's content. Right. So what you guys are doing, in my mind, is a radio show. Sure. Now, we call it a podcast because of the way that we distribute it. But in effect, what we're doing right now, uh, you guys would have done years ago, 
on the radio. Right. So that it, it, there is really no difference. You, well, the difference, I mean, aside from distribution, the difference to me, though, and it, I think this happened in television before radio, because podcasting has changed radio much the way that television ha- has been changed by it, you don't have to – if you want to watch your favorite television show or listen to your favorite music, you don't have to schedule it anymore. Yep. It's on demand. So DVRs and uh, TiVo or whatever it was sort of changed the idea that there was must-see television at 8 o'clock on a Thursday night yep. because, no, I don't have to do that. I'm busy. I'm going to watch it Friday afternoon on my recording. Yep. And now you've got Netflix and HBO and A&E and all these uh, former cable networks creating their own content. Um, and streaming it online, there is no nobody sits down at Thursday at eight o'clock and watches Cheers or The Cosby Show or anything else anymore because you can hear it hear it or see it anytime you want. And to me, that's what you know. If Chris and I did this twenty years ago, we'd have to do it. I don't know, two o'clock till till four o'clock in the morning, or you know, we same time every day. But we can. It's the beauty of podcasting is the flexibility for us and the listener. Uh, yeah, I, and to your point, Chris, and I'm not an expert on podcasting. I'm just starting to learn it just like you are. But from what people tell me, when people listen to podcasts, they listen to them on their iPhone or in their car on the way to work. So that's kind of like taking the place of the J.P. McCarthy's. That's well, what it's, I'm hearing but anyway. That's what it, and that's the same time that peak radio listeners tuned in, largely. And then, you know, you had Walkmans come along, so people still had the earphones on. But now they don't have to listen to the three, four, or five people who are on the radio at that time of day. They can listen to you and I who recorded this four days earlier. Uh, agreed. And it all comes back to, to, to the content thing. Right. And to me, that's really the important thing, as opposed to the, the mode of distribution. Yeah. The... Um, to, to, to kind of pick up on, on your thought there, um, when we look at the future, um, content is always going to, uh, to win. Good quality content w- will win. And so whether it's, it's your podcast or, uh, you know, J.P. McCarthy, whatever, and once that's established, that is a personal relationship. Right. So, you know, um, while you have... Uh, you, you don't have the appointment listening or appointment viewing that you're talking about. Um, there is a philosophical, you know, appointment with Chris and Chris, you know, right. that, that right. I want to go back and get those podcasts. Yep. So there has to be really something that segments your show or call yep. it a podcast from anybody else's. Cause, right. cause we, while we've got a lot more opportunity and we've yep. got a lot more material out there. We don't have any more hours of the day. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, that's true. You still have to connect to still have the to, listeners. Right. And because it, you know, if you had J.P. McCarthy on at eight o'clock in the morning on your way to work, and he happened to be sick or whatever that day, and you turn on another jock on another station, and you didn't like that guy, you were kind of out of luck because that, those were your choices that morning. Yeah. Where now your choices are infinite, so it's it's even more important to find a connection with that audience who no matter what time of day or wherever they are, they will tune you in. Yep. Even though you're asleep somewhere. Yep. You know, that's the beauty of it. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah. And and you know the um the other part of this and and um uh, I kind of encountered this uh, a little bit more on the TV side than than the radio side, but um you know the the whole appointment viewing Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, TV, for example, there are a lot of people um, that that still do tune in at eight, you know, sure. on, on Thursday nights and, and, and whatnot. And it isn't so much about um, 
you know, the shows per se, but it's a, uh, it's uh, the socialization issue. Well, we've finished dinner and, right. and we're sitting and, and this goes back to, you know, those very early days where, you know, you'd see the folks were in, in the forties when you would sit around the radio and, yeah. and listen to the show. So, you know, that socialization component is something that, that I believe that broadcasting really brings and the, uh, a, a difference between broadcasting and podcasting is podcasting by definition is narrow cast. Right. You know, uh, it, it's, it's a very narrow uh, cast and many of the most successful podcasts um, are uh, very niche based, right. very, yep. very niche or, or oriented. Yep. And, and broadcasting uh, reaches to, to a, a broader and wider age range. Yep. So, you know, w- when I was a young rock and roll kid, um, I didn't particularly like to listen to, you know, the four seasons on J.P. McCarthy's WJR, but that's what my parents listened right. to. You know, they were into Montavani, right? And, and you know, that, that was lost on me. That was yeah. old. Uh, but I, I learned a sensibility or a socialization there. And so from my, uh, you know, sitting on, on my... Uh, uh, as Dennis Miller would say, it's just my opinion. I could be wrong, uh, you know. Uh, routine. Um, I I think if broadcast broadcast is not going to go away, but uh, some of the 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 best broadcasters are are the ones that understand their role in society, and and deliver the type of content that is palatable to a broad range of, of audience. Right. So, uh, you know, uh, we do a, a show here. We're in the Current State studio. Mark Bayshore is our host, and, and we do a daily show, Current State and Current Sports. Uh, you know, these are live, you know, hour shows. And uh, each of those are turned into to podcasts. That's available, uh, and for those people that, that can't check it live. So do you have more listeners during the live broadcast or in the podcast later? Uh, it varies. It, uh, because we're a live show and many of our things are topical, yeah. we'll get more listeners at that point. But the podcast has greater legs. Right, right. And, and a lot of times we will do uh, a story that might be uh, far enough ahead of the curve. Some of the stuff for the Flint water crisis, for mm-hmm. example, where once the the sort of social media uh, chat gets out there, then people will come back and w- we'll see, uh, you know, numbers piling up on, hey, you should have heard the interview on current state. Right. And people will go back and do that. Yep. So I don't th- see them as uh, mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. They're just a, a, another method of distributing that content. Right. And that is one great benefit of this technology yeah. these days. When you think back, even J.P. McCarthy is a good example, or some of the early sort of morning zoo, you know, people yeah. in early morning radio that were doing really, I remember when I was in high school, really funny stuff in the morning or really great shows, but then they're gone. Yeah. They're, they're off in the, in the stratosphere somewhere and there's no recording of it. You can't go back and listen to it again and again and again if it was really great. And I just think the pressure on those people every single day to create great, brilliant shows, but then move on to the next day, yep. uh, it was must have been immense, you know. But now you can say you can. Chris and I could put out, you know, our greatest hits so far. We've only got twenty episodes or whatever, and they're yep. still out there. Absolutely, and and um, 
the the whole sort of archiving thing. I was reading today. Um, you guys might remember the Pacifica case uh, from your broadcast law courses. Pacifica. Uh, <laughs> Neither of us said anything. We must have not showed up. <laughs> TC three hundred one. I think was t- telecom policy and law or something like well, that. Well, well, you'll you'll remember that yeah. uh, confession you, time. It, that may have been the one class where I cheated, <laughs> Gary. I should full disclosure. I no, you, I you couldn't you couldn't cheat. That was a blue book blue book class where you had to write all the essays. Yeah, I think I snuck yeah. in some briefs though, some actual legal briefs. I think I brought into that class. Sorry. <laughs> well, Pacifica was the name uh, with the George Carlin seven words you can't say. Oh, uh, okay. Radio, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Pacifica is a group of um, non-commercial radio stations in California that um, you know has had such hard financial times that they have had to put their archiving process on hold. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the the guy that was just heading up their their archiving. Uh, has resigned, uh, you know, from budget cuts and, and so on. And so it's exactly that point. All of this old reel-to-reel tape that yeah. is deteriorating by the minute, right? Um, you know, trying to get through and, and preserve that, digitize it, you know, make it available in a historical uh, point of view, uh, if for nothing else than to just understand where the society was at that particular yeah. time. Yeah, there are 400,000 words in the English language, and there are seven of them you can't say on television. What a ratio that is. 399,993 That's what they told us they were, remember? That's a bad word. (laughs) You know the seven, don't you, that you can't say on television? Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits, huh? (laughs) Those are the heavy seven. Those are the ones that'll infect your soul, curve your spine, and keep the country from winning the war. <laughs> Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. Wow. The fact that, in a sense, a socially oriented comedian defined national broadcast policy is enormous. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's something that that we're all still affected by, you know, today. Which is interesting because now, and we joke on this podcast when people say, oh, sorry, I just swore I shouldn't say that. I mean, there are no standards in podcasting. You can say, do, talk about, there are no subjects that are off limits. There's no bleeping or it's, it's, which makes it fun for us. But you do wonder if there would be regulation coming someday in some form, somehow. But I mean, HBO is doing whatever they want to do in terms of nudity and and language. So uh, it's it's a totally different different world it well it really is and it defines uh public policy yeah so the concept of uh broadcast policy where you know the seven dirty words that we couldn't broadcast was predicated on the fact that all radio and tv stations operate with a license from the federal government to serve the public interest convenience and necessity that's a real common thing right what that basically means is that um, you have an obligation to protect children uh, who might 
you know, be listening at that time from language that their parents, you know, don't want them to hear. Now, when you think about what HBO does or cable does, uh, when you are buying that service, that's a right as an American that, that we can buy whatever we want. Right, exactly. You know, Chris, a couple of weeks ago, you and I were always talking about the OJ trial and things like that. And so I started watching the ESPN documentaries on OJ, which were phenomenal. And it dawned on me as I was watching that, that one thing we don't have anymore, I mean, Chris and I, sorry, Gary, we talk about how, about how much things have changed, but one thing we don't have anymore, which blows me away, is dominant news anchors. And I started to think hmm. some of the questions I wanted to ask you, Gary, but how have the students changed? Because, you know, you talked about, you know, what are they like as they come through your program? The newer students, sure, they are good with social media and they know Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that, whatever is out there now. But without having that, I guess, being, you know, not even growing up around news anchors or that type of thing, are you seeing a lot of passion in them as they come through the program? Do you have to show them this or how do you approach that part of it? Well, yeah, that, that, that's a great question. I, what I will say is, um, you know, the concept of helicopter parents um, is, is a major, major change from when you guys were in school. Um, parents look at um, bringing their young student here. And uh, I, I spent uh, eight years as director of undergrad studies and uh, would do a lot of tours. And now, uh, you know, with WKR, I do tours with students all the time. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it really strikes me how seldom the parents allow the, the kids to talk themselves or to ask questions. Mm -hmm. So when you ask about passion, it's hard to know because they're kind of beat down by their parents' desire of, well, I want you to be this or I want you to be that uh, sort of thing. So that's, that's a, a very definite change. Mm -hmm. um, we as faculty, every year um, at the start of the year, we'll get a, a little kind of a nomograph of you know, the incoming freshmen. So, uh, you know, 9-11, for example, is pretty fresh in, in my mind, and I'm assuming your minds. Absolutely. You know, you, you, you remember sure. exactly where you were. Well, when you think about it, uh, you know, uh, that, that was, what, 15, 16 years ago yeah. now. Today's college uh, freshman was three years old. That's right. Have no recollection yeah. of that. And, and so, um, you know, that, that's a difference. Yeah. in, in, in the, a perceptual difference. So something that we take as being uh, defining uh, in our views, they don't have. Right. Um, I, I, would, I would also, um, you know, kind of extend it out a little bit when you look at the, the changes uh, in, in perceptions of the uh, gay community uh, in particular. Uh, you know, the reticence is from the old schoolers uh, mm -hmm. and, and the young folks, uh, you know, are, 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 are doesn't make any sense. This is no big deal. Right. And, and, and so, um, in some ways they're much more passionate, much more accepting, you know, and so on. When you stretch that out to, um, you know, our electronics, you know, our social media use and, and so on, um, we do see, uh, of late students having, um, a lot harder time coping with um, perhaps less than an ideal grade or not being able to get into a, a class that they want. You know, the, the sort of um, 
you know, immediacy, uh, you know, serve me now, right. um, you know, attitude uh, has, has been pretty, pretty tough. Yeah. Well, and that's this whole culture of everybody's a winner. Yeah, you know, that's right. I mean, and the fact is, you don't get into a school tough. You figure something else out. You don't complain and have your mom call. Yeah, you know, yeah. but you know, these these are the same kids that got participation trophies for playing soccer and and not winning a game. We we were just out. <laughs> we were just down at the uh, uh, the Emmys, uh, and uh, uh, a guy got up and it was his first Emmy win. Uh, young guy, and he was overcome with emotion. And he says uh, he was trying to be cute, but it was sincere. He said. This is the first trophy I've gotten that wasn't for participation. Yeah. <laughs> Where I actually oh, earned it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> for something God good that I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great start. It, and I've heard stories of, you know, college students getting failing a class and mom does call. Oh, absolutely. I, I've, uh, you know, I've had that. Or, or they, they want to get in and, uh, you know, and they can't get in. Or, or yeah. yeah. I mean, um, and, and, you know, coming back to, to Pat, my, my wife, um, when uh, she's in a public school and they're, they're a very good public school and she gets great marks and so on. But uh, parents really look at uh, these schools as, um, you know, they're the clients and the client is always right. Right. And, um, you know, I, I guess I can understand that concept. But, you know, you're paying these teachers poorly, I might add, but you're paying these teachers to know the best way to teach your kids something. Yeah. And, um, you know, in effect, um, you got to back off and let them do what they do. Right. And right. there's a certain degree of trust there. And in those helicopter parents uh, are not doing their kid very many favors when it gets out into, you know, I hate to use the cliche, but the real world. Right. Where the rest of us exist. I think the trust issue is a big thing because if you're the parent doing such a great job picking the right school for your kid, then let your kid go there and trust the decision that you yourself made. Yeah. Instead of questioning all along, say, well, wait a minute, what what are you people doing for my kid this week? You know, well, you chose us and we know what we're doing, so yeah. trust us to do our job. It's it's strange. That one thing about uh, today's student I want to touch on, too, you and I were talking about the fact that this podcast, for example, I can edit it on my laptop and using technology that is far exceeds even the studios that we had at, at Michigan State in 1990. I mean, you know, the editing software and even this little device sitting in front of us and the microphones that I'm going to put in my backpack and take home with me are far, you know, better quality and, and more powerful than the things we were using back then. But the thing that we had back then that I think doesn't exist today is, you know, when we were editing audio production in your class in 1989, we were physically cutting magnetic tape yep. with a, what, a scalpel or a razor blade or whatever, and then taking exacto a piece... Exacto knife. Exacto knife, sorry, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, maybe that's why I didn't do well. I was using a scalpel. Um, <laughs> and then taking a piece of tape and splicing it to physically splicing it together and now all that of course is digital and that but but the concept and that linear cons concept of uh of this podcast is what helps me edit it at the end and i think ho i hopefully makes it better now, that's got to be a tough concept to teach when you don't have that anymore yeah you, you know one thing um every one of the students uh in in the college now uh comes in and they have to have a laptop and it could be Mac or, you know, PC or whatever. Right. And, and we say, you know, these are the software packages that, that you need. And so um, uh, 
what bothers me a little bit, um, well, more than a little bit, is that there is an assumption that somehow the the tool is more important than the product. So, it, you know, if you find a craftsman, if you find a, a great carpenter, and they need to saw a board, well, you could use a handsaw, you could use a power saw, you could use a saber saw, you know. Right. The, a lot of ways to do it. Right. A, a, a craftsman, a true artist, is going to be able to make something great with the tool that they have available to them. And what bothers me uh, often is um, that we focus on, you know, oh, I've got to have a better camera, you know, right. or, you know, I don't have the right software, or in the audio world, they're plugins, you know, yep. uh, uh, you know, my music basses. There's actually a plugin, guys, that puts hiss back in you know and, and 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 i just look at that and i and i say to the young students you know they oh yeah man that's vintage and i said do you do you know how many decades i spent in my career trying to get rid of hiss right. and, and and you just paid money for something to put it back in yeah you know uh, oh, my son thinks it's really cool to listen to a record yeah. because of the pops and the hisses. It's, oh, man, that yeah. sounds so much better. It sounds real. Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, you know, yeah. when CDs came along, we were thrilled we didn't have to hear that shit anymore. It's yeah, ab- amazing. Absolutely. So, um, uh, uh, again, you know, I use the, the, the tools and, you know, I got my iPhone in my pocket and, yeah. and all that. So that's great. But, but um, I think one of the things that, that we're at, in college – not necessarily doing as well as we should. And that is figuring out how to, to translate and transfer from concentrating on the, the difficulty of physicality, you know, editing uh, with a razor blade. Um, th- there, w- there was something tactile there, and it, it was also psychological in that you had to be sure of that edit. You had to think through your whole piece yep. to begin with before you started hacking because it was going to take you a long way to get back. There so was it, no undo button. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and you had to commit. Yeah. You know, and, and so you, you had to visualize in your brain what you wanted it to sound like before you got, got rolling on it. In, in today's world, when you've got infinite possibilities, for, for someone who... Again, like a young student with a helicoptered parent, yep. that they have very hard time making decisions, you know, or they, uh, the, there's no guidance there of, oh, I can do that. Or there's no curiosity of, you know, how did Chris and Chris, you know, make this podcast work? Was Chris in the studio or was he in Chicago? And, you know, right. the, that curiosity is missing that that used to be there. So from a college standpoint, when everybody's got tools where the, the playing field is level, then I think it's incumbent on us as faculty uh, to, to figure out what can we give at Michigan State that gives our graduates a leg up. What exercises can we have them do? And it's not enough anymore just to, to show them to, to do an edit. They right. probably can do that you know, find coming out of high school. Absolutely. Um, and, and so what is it that, that we can bring to the table uh, that is content-oriented, that is psychologically, that is sociologically, you know, important that we can bring to the table where our students can, can move that, that forward? 
Do you think this generation or that technology has allowed these today's college students to be better informed? You know, interestingly, no. It's too easy to only read online what you want to hear. Right. Pick and choose. And and if you don't trust an anchor, a news anchor, uh, and this is, again, coming back to my point about the, I believe, the value of broadcasting, um, then you're you're only, you know, it's that masturbation issue again. Right. You're only hearing what you've already decided is the truth. And that's been going on for a while. I mean, if, all, if you wanted to get your news and your political information from Rush Limbaugh, 15, 20 years ago, you could have done that too. Absolutely. But now it's just so, so pervasive in so many different yeah. niched areas. And, you know, uh, you talk about the future of broadcast. Uh, the Democrats some years ago tried to compete with uh, AM talk radio, Limbaugh and, and uh, Hannity and, and the others. Uh, and it didn't work. And everybody was amazed. Well, why, you know, why isn't you know, progressive talk radio working? But it, it didn't last as a network because the progressively minded people weren't listening to the radio. Uh, you know, right. they were already online and, and you know, kind of... <laughs> yeah. a, a, They'd moved on. <laughs> right, you know, ahead of the curve. Yeah. So that isn't to say that, that uh, there's not room for uh, progressive thought, but um, what, I, what I'm suggesting is that different mindsets choose different uh, media outlets right. to get their information. Yeah, that's true. Our choice was so limited back then. Everybody pretty much pretty much got their news from the same place. Yeah. You know, maybe it, skewed slightly different really from a rather to a Jennings, but essentially it was the same stuff. Yeah. You know, so let's talk about NPR for a minute. Uh, NPR has this sort of high class view. Elite. Yeah, some people view it as the elite. Some people view it as very elite. Yep. Um and you know, during my time with with WKAR, there will be people that uh, that will be very conservative. And they will just, you know, rip me a new one about how, uh, you know, liberal NPR is. Right. Uh, and, and so on. Interestingly, I see the data uh, that, that comes from the network. Uh, you know, NPR, compared to most others, is, is far more balanced than, um, than anybody else. Right. Now, that isn't to say that being balanced is actually... A particularly good thing yeah. because what it amounts to is in an attempt to be balanced you end up becoming kind of pablomesque you know it's just like baby food you know right, right. We, we you know we're going to be politically correct and we're not going to say anything right we're going to appeal I, to as many people as we th- can th- that's right in a, in a sense to try to be fair yeah i go back uh you know even before you guys uh to um you know vietnam and, uh, you know, when, when uh, Walter Cronkite on CBS turned against Vietnam, right, it yeah. was done. Yeah. And, seminal yeah. Mo- the seminal moment in that war, a- absolutely. A- the country a- went with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A- absolutely. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. And it wasn't so much that it was, you know, the, the news anchor giving uh, an opinion. It was the fact that this was the guy we didn't know his politics. You know, we, we didn't, it, we never heard that before. And so rather than this constant spewing of, 
you know, propaganda. Right. It was a guy who was perceived as being fair and balanced well before Fox, you know, bastardized that comment. Right, right. And, and so that's where clout came in. And so from and the fact that he hadn't done it before and no one did it at that time gave it a lot of credibility. In other words, you, you would only do that if it was really, really important and really, really needed to be said. I, I, he was the most trusted man in America. Yeah. And yeah. for him to Absolutely. express that kind of uh, opinion in that forum was, yeah, it changed everything. Yeah. It, Juxtapose that on to where we are today. And, and mm -hmm. to, you know, I think the, the important uh, part is, is just being a, a, a straightforward, standing up for what makes sense. And, and to me, that's what universities ought to be doing. Um, I, I think it, from a faculty standpoint, if there's ways that we can, uh, can teach students to do that, and, and you teach it on all levels, whether it's mentoring or the way you write or, you know, forcing people to research outside their comfort zone. Uh, you know, those are the sort of takeaways that uh, from a progressive, you know, forward thinking societal point of view that, uh, that universities ought to be doing. On behalf of a generation of former disc jockeys, what are you listening to music-wise these days? And where are you getting your music these days? If, if Gary Reed is on Spotify, then that says a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I, I am not a Spotify or a Pandora fan. My problem is that that only gives you what you've already put in. That's right. It's, and, it's really tough to find new music. Right. You know, I love uh, curated, you know, I love listening to DJs. So I'll listen to Impact. Um, you know, frankly, a lot of the, the new music is not designed for guys like me. Or us, for, frankly. Uh, what I'm getting a big kick out of of late is um, music that is used in uh, film and to some degree television. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. agree with you. Yeah. We just watched uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, with... Uh, the Robert, Robert Downey, Downey Jr., yeah. Uh, Hans Zimmer uh, did, yeah. did that, that soundtrack. And, uh, you know, I just dig that. Yeah. When I encounter artists that uh, are doing other uh, forms, yeah. uh, you know, then I'll typically investigate them a little bit more. That's a good point. You know, for a while there, a few years ago, I, I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Grey's Anatomy, mm -hmm. but I have downloaded dozens of songs from the Grey's Anatomy collection, you know, the, the whatever the soundtrack, whatever they used on the show. Yeah. Great music. Whoever their music supervisor was, was fantastic. Yep. yep. Sunday nights on Showtime are one of my guilty pleasures, but Cameron Crowe, started a show on Showtime. His his debut episode was Sunday night, and it's it's called Roadie. So it's about, the, as, the, as the name suggests, it's a sh song about roadies in a rock band, but he scores the whole thing, you know, an hour-long show. There's music playing throughout that entire show. So I must have spent 10 bucks on iTunes this week, and that's just the first episode. I'm in for a long season. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, the music's amazing. I mean, it's, I mean, obviously, Cameron Crowe, a rock journalist and all that, just is... No, it's really good stuff. So I don't know if you've uh, if you're familiar with what we do at the end of our interviews lately, or the last few episodes anyway. We've been firing three quick questions at our guests. It could just kind of fun, lighten it up a little bit. So uh, the first question: When you were younger, teenager, maybe, what did you want to be when you grew up? A musician. That that's what I was originally yeah. going to do. A drummer. Yeah. What were your so this is '60s? What was your favorite? I mean, were you Ringo Starr fan? Were you who were you who were you trying to emulate? 
Charlie Watts. Uh, <laughs> actually, Ginger Baker. I think Ringo gets a bad rap. He, uh, the yeah. Beatles wouldn't have happened without Ringo. That guy can swing, and and that that's a bitch. If, if you've ever uh, heard uh, a cover band try to do Beatles songs, they can hit the harmonies, they can play the chords, but but if their drummer doesn't know how to swing like like Ringo, it doesn't work. What would you try? Could do anything right now what would you do if you knew that you couldn't fail at it i i am uh contemplating uh, getting heavy into house flipping uh you know i uh as a kind of a guilty pleasure i i build stuff and uh you know i've done our kitchen and a lot of stuff at my mom's house and up north and so on so i think uh you know construction building renovation interests cool. me all right, so the last one, if there's, and this is a great question for you. We've asked a lot of guests this, and we get some great answers. But for you, this is perfect. If you had to come up with one song that sums up your childhood or that represents growing up, what would it be? Wow. Uh, Beatles got to get you into my life um, in virtually all uh, configuration. Earth, Wind, and Fire's version. Oh, of, oh all the covers. Earth, Love Wind, and Fire's oh, man, version of Got to Get You Into My Life, I think, is, is really great. Both Chris and I, I'm sure, we're, are very glad you were in our lives at right. some point. <laughs> That's why we're here. That's why we're doing what we do. I appreciate it, gentlemen. I can't thank you enough. Well, yeah. no, thank you. We really appreciate it. It's been nice to have you here. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Thanks Gary. Gary Reed from Michigan State University. Thanks for joining us this week, everybody. And as always, if you have questions, comments, criticisms, whatever you have, send it to us at chrisandchrismg at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.